second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the 81 All Out podcast. This is Siddhartha Vaidyanathan at Sidvi on Twitter. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by one of my favorite writers, journalist, historian, and an author whose books can fill an entire bookshelf. Yes, who else but the great Gideon Haig. The focus of this episode is Gideon's latest collaboration with Wasim Akram, which is a memoir titled Sultan, and I was interested to find out why Gideon chose to write this and the process he followed during the course of the book. I did mention that it was perhaps the most un-Gideon of Gideon books, simply because the entire story is told in Wazim's voice and Gideon has managed to pull off a magic trick by being invisible in the background. There was one problem though. The internet connection at my end was terrible and it took a few attempts for Gideon to even hear my questions. My voice broke throughout, and I needed to repeat several questions multiple times. When I played back the recording, I realized that my questions were largely unintelligible, and the audio quality was spoiling the listening experience. The good news, Gideon's connection was great, and his answers were all wonderfully coherent. So this will be a slightly different podcast, to the ones you normally hear on 81 All Out. I will paraphrase what I was asking and you will then hear Gideon's responses. This will not be a free-flowing conversation, but I hope that that will not distract you from the stories that Gideon narrates about his partnership with Wazim. You will hear me pop in and out of this podcast, but my hope is that I am mostly in the background while you take in all of Gideon's wisdom. I began my conversation by asking why Gideon had chosen to write this book. Was there specific that drew you in, I asked. Well, it is a, a little bit out of my, um, my usual zone. Uh, although I had uh, earlier this year published uh, a diary with Dan Christian of his year of playing T20 cricket around the world. So I'd grown accustomed to the company of a, of a top-level cricketer, and to uh, and to discussing what makes them tick and uh, and how their uh, how, how their life is uh, moulded to uh, to to work alongside their their cricket. So when this project came along, uh, maybe I was a little bit more open to the idea than than I would have been normally. Of course. Um, yeah, there's a there's a very very small elite of cricketers who are worthy of comparison with Wasim Akram. So, in that sense, uh, there was a there was a uh, an allure uh, when um, when his wife approached me, and I think the other thing that interested me was that he had waited so long to tell his story. Uh, he hadn't felt the need to cash in, as it were, in the immediate aftermath of his career. He'd, uh, he'd kept his own counsel. I, I could sense that there were events in his cricket career that were more and less difficult to, uh, to talk about. They're, they're pretty obvious, really. Uh, so I sort of wondered why now. Uh, and, of course, when, when someone decides after 20 years to do their book, that's because they want to do it, not, be not because they have to do it. There's no, there was no necessity for for Wes to cash in on his existing fame. Uh, there was no need for him to take advantage of the of his relevance to uh, to inter international cricket. Cr cricket. So um, when I first talked to him, uh, I, I was pretty keen to get a sense of what he wished to accomplish. And the first thing that he alluded to was the fact that his kids, his two sons by his first wife, Humar, uh, now in their 20s, uh, studying in the United States, and his daughter with Shanira, Isla, who's, who's now seven years old, none of them had any recollection of his playing. And they'd grown up uh, having experiences very, very different. It could not be more remote from uh, from. Uh, Wasm's experiences of his own upbringing. 
So in that sense, it was an attempt to bridge that generational gap between Wasim and uh, and his and his offspring, which I which I thought was a worthy idea. And I also hoped, and I and I think I um I think I was vindicated in this in this idea uh, that twenty years is a good opportunity for a cricketer to develop a sense of context around their career. They've seen cricket before they played. They've seen cricket after they played, in addition to the cricket during they played, during the period that they played. They've seen the way in which cricket has evolved. They've seen uh, how one copes with uh, triumph, disaster, and uh, you know, post-cricket assimilation of, uh, of, of, of a new life. So uh, in that sense, Wasim was probably going to be a bit broader than your average cricket autobiogra- autobiographical subject. And that kind of enticed me uh, as, as well. And the fact is that you know, Wasim's background is very poor. Uh, he is your classical Pakistani cricketer in the sense that he was discovered on the streets and, uh, and rushed into international competition on the basis of his raw talent, not because of a great bureaucratic system engineered to, uh, to mass manufacture cricketers, he does hark back to a period when Pakistan cricket was uh, extremely uh, you know, accidental. I mean, I'll make the point early on that Pakistan cricket has often been about lines of patronage. It's about who you know rather than maybe who, how good you are. Uh, Wasim, though, advanced on uh, his talents uh, and made a kind of an irrefut- irrefutable case for for recognition, and he's also remarkable because he's a completely self-taught player. Uh, you know, his um, his action is almost entirely untutored uh, and and natural. He's never really had to change it. Of course, there were he introduced complexities and, and layers and, and variations, and uh, and he became incredibly fit in the course of his career in order to sustain that. Uh, that high level of, uh, of of competitiveness, but a lot about Wasim is is unreconstructed. Uh, he's he bowled in Test cricket pretty much the way that he bowled on the streets of Lahore as a teenager. Of course, you know, with the talent goes a huge reservoir of competitiveness, uh, you know, a desire to win at uh, at uh, at all events, uh, and also um, I think. His uncanny um, relationship with Imran Khan. It, it's almost, um, it may be the most fascinating uh, dynamic between two great players in the, in the course of the 20th century that Imran so completely adopted uh, Wasim, made him into his project. Uh, it's possible to contemplate Wasim succeeding without Imran Khan, but I think not to anything like the same degree. And they're still close. You know, personally, they are still close. It is it is almost paternal, uh, Imran's regard for Wasim. I was able to speak to, to Imran in the course of, of doing this book, and he spoke of Wasim with enormous warmth and, and spontaneity too. Uh, when he when he dropped back into describing their relationship, it, he spoke about it in the present tense, as though it was still unfolding. It, that it wasn't just an artifact of the past, but certainly the contrast between the two of them, uh, I think, was reflected most clearly in um, uh, an observation that Wasim made about himself uh, to me. Just just a casual off the cuff remark. He says he hates these days to see kids fail to finish their meals, to send back food uneaten. I thought that was really fascinating because he remembered being young and being hungry, um, starving for, uh, for, for nutrition as, as, as well as for attention. That's something that Imran Khan never had to do. You know, in some ways, Imran's uh, career was, was predestined. You know, he's, he, he came up you know, via... English, the English county and university system. Um, he, he remade himself uh, later in the 1970s, but his his initiation in the game was uh, he was to the manner born, if you like. Ravi Shastri actually made an interesting point to me 
um, he said that uh, one of the things that was very challenging about playing Wasim was that because he rushed through the crease, he didn't give you any sort of trigger. He didn't he didn't allow you to to synchronize your pre movements as a batsman with a delivery stride. So the first time you faced him, you had absolutely you were absolutely helpless against him. It took a long time for you to calibrate your game according to, to Wasim Akran. And in that sense, Wasim set the terms of, of every engagement. I mean, amazing cricketer. He gave enormous thought to what he was doing as well as as well as having natural talent. And and he also in you know inherited that role of being a, a leader from Imran. I imagine having to live up to the leadership role, the leadership shadow that uh, that Imran cast. Uh, it's not an assignment that anyone would would undertake willingly. And of course, you know, he he grappled uneasily with it, as 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 did most Pakistan cricketers of the 1990s. But it is amazing that he managed to defy that. Uh, tendency towards instability by being such a consistent performer himself. One of the things that struck me from that response was Gideon talking to Ravi Shastri and Imran Khan about Wasim Akram for this ghosted uh, memoir or autobiography, if we may call it. Um, I asked Gideon to talk a bit about the process of writing the book and how much of it was his, his journalism of talking to other cricketers and members of his family and everyone else around him, and how much of it was speaking to Wazim himself and trying to distill what he was trying to say about his career and his craft. Well, early on, we had uh, delusions about the possibility of my going to Pakistan in order to do the book, but uh, these were unfortunately vanquished by COVID. So an awful lot of it had to be squeezed through the suboptimal medium of Zoom, uh, which, as good as it is, uh, isn't anywhere near as um, pleasing or, or intimate as, as sitting in the same room as, as someone. However, we were able to build sufficient of a rapport over Zoom that by the time uh, we, we sort of pushed some of the more difficult stuff down the pike until... Uh, Wasim was in a position to come to Australia. Some people might know that uh, that Wasim lives part of the year in Australia. He is married to uh, an Australian woman, Shanira Thompson. Uh, they have a house in Brighton. Um, Isla, his his seven year old, is at school here. So he divides his time between Australia, Pakistan, and England, where he also has a house in in Altrincham. So he was able to come here towards the end of that process, and uh, and we we sat down together in his living room, and I asked him questions. You know, when you when you do something like this, you have to be you have to be enormously well prepared. You know, I, I developed a an un, an encyclopedic knowledge of uh, of, of Wasim's games. Uh, you you have to you have to know everything. You have to almost know more than your subject in order to to get the best out of them, but. One of the interesting things about this book is that because we were coming along 20 years after his career finished, it was not as though we were recapitulating games that were within a lot of people's memories. You know, a lot of games from Sharjah, a lot of lot of one-day uh, bilateral series, uh, they uh, might have been sensations at the moment, but their significance had, had rather vanished with time. And I didn't really see the point in recapitulating those games in enormous detail. I had to know about them, but it was a case of judiciously choosing from what Wasim was able to tell me of what he remembered in order to make the uh, the, the book tick. I've seen countless autobiographies uh, undermined and made incredibly boring by the process of uh, you know, if this is Friday, it must be Faisalabad, uh, that, that endless recapitulation of game after game after game, which is uh, as gru as gruelling for the reader as it probably was for the, uh, the cricketer themselves. So I did all the hard yakka, but when it came to writing it, it was important for me to, to choose judiciously, to, to, to edit it, um, not to simply conduct sort of high-level stenography. This is proper journalism, and it's, um, and it's journalism that benefits, as you say, from 
the inflections of or, or the, uh, the the refractions of Wasim that uh, that other people were, were able to offer me. Uh, it started off as the idea that I would uh, speak to cricketers around the world or, or who were friends of Wasim who had recollections of him. But uh, but we went we went further than that. I actually discussed the um, the uh, the the mechanics of, uh, of of facing Wasim. Had a fascinating conversation with Sachin Tendulkar about him. Fascinating conversation with Anil Kumble, uh, Rahul Dravid. Uh, they're all really really helpful because I mean all cricketers are at some level cricket fans, and who couldn't but be transfixed by the mastery of a, of, of a cricketer like Wasim. So it was a composite. It was a um, it was a, 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 an aggregation or, or accumulation of, uh, of of anecdote. It involved a sort of an iterative loop. You, you wrote something. You realised where you lacked some material. You went back to uh, t- to fill it again. Over time, you you built up a a, a sense of uh, the evolution of of Wasim's character. Uh, you saw him kind of mature as a man. Um, in, the, in the process of the stories he was telling about about his career, and you got a sense of the evolution of Pakistan cricket in that period, which was a very very important context. Once again, I had to learn an awful lot about Pakistan cricket politics. I became a real Pakistan cricket bore in the course of doing this book. Uh, they they have <laughs> it is absolutely fascinating um the the rise and fall of uh, of administrative dynasties in uh, in Pakistan i wasn't able to go into a chapter and verse because i don't imagine an awful lot of people would have borne with me all the way but it was very important to keep a weather eye on where the pcb and the, and the bccp before that was at at the time that these events in in wasim's career were uh, were happening the thought of Gideon investigating PCB shenanigans made me suggest that it could be the topic of his next book, maybe the history of cricket administration in Pakistan, uh, the comedy, the tragedy, the farce. But um, Gideon was uh, past that and said that he would leave it to Osman Samyuddin to tackle that, maybe as a sequel to his book, The Unquiet Ones the history of Pakistan cricket. Anyway, on a more serious note, I wanted to ask Gideon about the tone that he took in the book because when you read it, you can clearly see that he is very much in the background. He has disappeared from the book for long stretches and you only hear Wasim Akram's voice page after page after page. Of course, there's occasionally a word like pettifogging that will make you stop and say, hello Gideon. But uh, mostly, you only hear it the way you think that Wasim Akram will talk. So I wanted to ask Gideon about how he devised this tone and uh, was quite uh, impressed with the way he has disappeared from this book when you contrast it with the other, another book that he wrote about another famous cricketer, another great cricketer, on Vaughan, where there is so much of Gideon in that book and he basically allowed himself to, uh, you know, go all out with his flights of fancy and his vocabulary and his imagination and his metaphors in that book. So I wanted to know how he compared that to this. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, this is a completely different project. I'm an enabler or a, or a medium here, uh, not, a, not a radical interpreter as I was in, uh, in, in On Warn. I am. I'm always reminded of that. Um, the stories that Arthur Porritt told about trying to write W. G. Grace's autobiography. Porritt was a journalist. He was the editor of the Church Times. He was asked to write um, uh, Grace's book, and he found Grace a terribly, terribly difficult subject to get anything out of. He said he would finish days of work with Grace in complete despair. He would ask questions of grace like what were you what were you thinking what were you feeling when you scored 150 at brighton that day and grace would reply well i wasn't feeling anything i was thinking about where deep fine leg was placed i was i was play, uh, thinking about the bowlers i was about to face there is something quite difficult about trying to access a player's 
thought process in real time. Uh, their their recollections are inevitably contaminated by other people's recollections, by the fact that they have to sink themselves entirely in their uh, in their in their efforts, and um, and also the, uh, uh, the, the the context of of success and and, and failure. You necessarily recollect more vividly success, uh, and you you tend to push failure or confusion or, or perplexity to one side. So a, a writer has to constantly be in the in the state of of making adjustments. Uh, as as to uh, you know words like pedophogging, which I must confess is one of my favourite words. Um, Arthur Porritt uh, was once confronted by W.G. Grace when the manuscript for his autobiography contained the word inimical. If I was, if that was to appear under my own name in print, then other cricketers would laugh at me. They would have to, they would have to change. Uh, they, they would, uh, you'll have to change it. So, so I had that. I had that in mind. There was a ghostwriting. I think the expression comes from a. Uh, Pardon me if I'm wrong. There was a sports agency in the 1920s in America, which set itself up to tell the stories of sportsmen. It realised that there was a kind of a market for stories of great baseballers and, and, and great footballers. And the man who founded it, his um, his first commandment of ghostwriting was, "Don't tell the story in the sportsman's own words." Tell it in the words that people imagine the sportsman would use. You, you, you kind of have to meet the expectations of, of the audience. Uh, people will have an imagined idea of what Wasim Akram sounds like, which, which probably isn't you know, a verbatim transcript of the inevitably uh, speculative and, and provisional nature of, uh, of, of someone's conversational English. Uh, so you have to kind of you, you meet somewhere in the middle. It's um, it's a fascinating process, and actually one of the reasons why I did the book because I like the literary challenge of uh, of doing that. Uh, and maybe I put in the odd pettifog in there just to remind you <laughs> that uh, that I was at work behind the scenes. I have always been fascinated by cricketers' memories. Uh, my experience goes back to 1992, writing the Cricket War where I got the opportunity to interview cricketers for the first time, really, and comprehensively about their careers. Uh, it was fascinating what they got right. It was fascinating what they got wrong and what they'd left out of their, um, of their accounts. Uh, it was fascinating how they would conflate games. Uh, it was interesting how they would remember them in terms of other cricketers' memories, because often cricketers get together afterwards and discuss a game with each other and, and their, their memories inform the memories of, uh, of, of others. And there is also the natural reticence that comes from talking about your own accomplishments. Uh, certainly in Australia, uh, it's not done to sort of big note. It, it's not done to talk obsessively about yourself. That was something I learned early on, that cricketers often speak more freely about other cricketers than they do about their own performances. Like I said, most cricketers are at some level cricket fans and they appreciate greatness, which is one of the reasons why the recollections of others were, were, were so helpful in, in giving me a, a sense of, of uh, Wasim's prowess. That said, uh, some of Wasim's recollections, for instance, his account of the, uh, of, of the World Cup final in 1992, are wonderfully precise and vivid uh, and undeviating. You know, he... Um, he he tells the same story every time. Perhaps he's perhaps of course he's become used to telling that story. Uh, in in a uh, he's been asked to, to recollect it over and over again, but it comes out very very smoothly. Uh, and the other thing that that um, that he recollects very strongly is his sense of hierarchy in the team in the Pakistan team. Because we mustn't forget that Wasim was terribly terribly young when he started playing international cricket. Uh, youthful, uh, unlettered, unformed, naive, terribly naive in the, in the ways of the world. And one of the lines that he used over and over again in our conversations, particularly when I asked him about cricket in the 1980s up, up to 
you know, the, the early 1990s. He would say, I was just a young kid. I was just a young kid. And that obviously, that reminded me of, of, of how he felt within that dressing room, overawed over and daunted by the huge reputations and personalities of, uh, of Imran and, and, and Javed and, uh, and others. Uh, he, he didn't really take himself all that seriously until Imran and Javed passed from the stage and he found himself thrust into, uh, in, into leadership positions. And I think that he found that that came on very suddenly and it didn't sit well with him originally. He didn't quite know what to do as a, as a young captain. He'd never captained uh, a team at, at any level uh, before he captained uh, Pakistan in, on that tour in the West Indies in 1993, and, and, it, and it showed. Uh, he took from Imran that leadership model, that, that very sort of uh, charismatic leadership model, that very authoritarian leadership model, which of course did not suit a man in his mid twenties, anywhere near it's anywhere near as as well as it suited Imran in in his late nineteen thirties, and I think in that sense he became very confused about how he was meant to approach leadership. I think it's actually quite impressive that uh, it's something that he doesn't probably get enough credit for is how he matured as a captain, as a leader, how he took his the failure of his first period as captain and rebuilt himself as a blender of personalities uh, and a mentor to to young cricketers, which is something that's continued into his into his post-playing career. I think he's a very good coach. He's a very he has a fantastic rapport with with players. In some senses he is a he's a real player's player. Uh, it's not like he envies current players, but he uh, has a capacity to identify with them now. To identify with their travails and uh, and, and pressures, uh, and to uh, and to sympathise with them in their lot. One of the aspects of the book that really stands out is how Wasim can be both extremely critical and extremely gushing about a teammate. I mean, a classic example is Salim Malik, who he really admires as a batsman and who he raves about when he talks about some of his fine innings, especially against spin. But he's equally damning when it comes to his relationship with match fixers and um, his uh, sort of uh, aloofness when it came to team dynamics. Um, probably the only cricketer that uh, receives only sheer praise is Imran. And everybody else is somewhere in between uh, high praise and <laughs> high damnation. So I wanted to ask Gideon about the relationship that Wazim specifically shared with Wakar Yunus, his bowling partner and somebody whom he has become synonymous with when it comes to reverse swing. Uh, the two W's is something that we refer to all the time. So I wanted to ask about that relationship and also why there wasn't that much of admiration as I would have imagined for Wakar. Uh, there isn't that much damnation too, but uh, I would have expected a bit more of a gushing tone in parts when he writes about Wakar. It's an evolving relationship, Sid. I, I think they're actually closer now than they were when they played. I, I think there was a there was an age gap there that was actually pretty pronounced in that Pakistan dressing room. Wakar himself gravitated towards his uh, immediate peers rather than to Wasim. One thing that Wasim does love about Wakar is the sense that he was his guy. You know, it was it was Wasim who saw Wakar bowling in Pakistan domestic cricket and drew him to the attention of of Imran. So, in some senses, he felt uh, 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 a, a a fondness that uh, that arose from the fact that he almost felt him to be a bit of a discoverer of of Wakar's talent. Of course. They then became rivals, and that's a fascinating evolution for uh, a partnership. They went from uh, a, a sort of a mentor-mentee relationship to um, uh, uh, one sort of eyeing off the other. And, of course, it was Wakar who emerged as one of Wasim's rivals for the captaincy in the, in the 1990s. Uh, I mean, one of the fascinating things about Pakistan cricket is how everyone 
covets the captaincy. It's something that's so alien to uh, to, to an Australian. Uh, you know, it is not done to flash that field marshal's baton in your knapsack. Many many are called, but few are chosen where leadership is concerned. But of course, in Pakistan cricket, it, there were periods in Wazim's career where there were as many as half a dozen present and past captains in the Pakistan dressing room. You can just imagine the challenges of corralling a, a dressing room like that with with uh, with so much leadership experience and so much personal ambition. Uh, but I think um, 20 years has made a big difference now to, to Wasim and his relationship with those teammates. I think in 2003, uh, I think Wasim felt pretty alienated from the Pakistan cricket establishment. You know, he was hurried out the door, there's no doubt about it, by the Pakistan administrators and perhaps by his contemporary cricketers as well who were busy advancing their own cause. But uh, perhaps good memories outlast bad memories. Uh, when it came to talking about uh, about players, as you say, like, like Salim Malik, uh, when it came to assessing the skills of, of contemporaries, uh, Wasim could not have been more forthcoming. I think that there are very few people in Pakistan cricket that basically Wasim can't stand and probably will never be able to stand. But he feels really proud of his career. He feels very proud of what the team was able to accomplish. Uh, and he still loves the game. You know, he's not disillusioned with the, with the game. He still really relishes it. And that's a good test for someone who's had so much of the game over such a protracted period. I was able to uh, to, to connect with a few Pakistan cricketers, but uh, they were not particularly reliable at getting back to me, let's just say. <laughs> it was it was challenging. Um, and uh, even Imran was uh, was was hard to get to. I, 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 <laughs> I had the devil's own job getting to Imran. But when I got him, he was fantastic. Uh, we uh, I, I probably spent about six months trying to track Imran down. I had his I had about half a dozen different WhatsApp numbers for him. They kept running out because, of course, Imran changes his number every other week. And uh, and then one day Waz rang and said, "Look." Uh, if you ring this number at 10 o'clock Pakistan time tonight, Imran will be there. I went, right, okay, that I can do. It was 3 o'clock in the morning Australian time, but I thought, no, I'm, I'm up for this. So I got up at 2.30, I rang the number, and it rang out. I thought, oh, not again. And then just as I was about to toddle off to bed, I got a text message from Imran saying, call me back in an hour. So I rang him at four o'clock in the morning from here, and it was actually the night of the elections in Punjab in Pakistan, where where Imran's party had won an amazing victory, and he he just had back to back party meetings afterwards. But it does tell you something about Imran's regard for Wasim that even in that moment of political triumph, he was very happy to uh, to start talking about his his former contemporary, and he spoke about him really perceptively. I thought really thoughtfully. And like I said, in the present tense, it was almost like they were about to take the field again tomorrow together. I wanted to ask Gideon about the challenges that Wasim faced in his career. This was both the physical challenges as well as the emotional challenges um, and also the challenges that come from being part of the Pakistan team of the 90s that was so riven by personality cult and ego and everything else that went on. Um, Wazim was uh, diagnosed with diabetes uh, pretty much uh, midway through his career, um, maybe slightly later than midway through his career, but um, early enough <laughs> when he had a chunk of playing time left. And uh, he also had a lot of personal trauma that he had to endure um, you know, in his post-career as well as during large parts of his career because of the scandals around match fixing, because of the scan, uh, sort of the shenanigans around the Pakistan board, the backstabbing about his captaincy and so on and so forth. So I wanted to talk about this uh, highly physical and emotional toll that cricket took on Wazim. And very often when you're reading the book, uh, you're thinking that the great, perhaps the greatest bowler of all time 
was also perhaps one of the most tortured cricketers uh, of all time. Yeah, it's fascinating, actually. It's fascinating because, of course, um, in the second half of Wasim's career, he was bedeviled by diabetes, a, a very public uh, condition, um, very rare for a, for a sports person in, uh, in, in Asia to, to make that so clear. I didn't say this in the book, but um, but I suspect that it was a, it was a huge disadvantage. But it wasn't uh, entirely negative in Wasim's career. It did compel him to give much more thought uh, and apply much more system to his physical conditioning after 1998. You know, he did actually have to look after himself, as he says. He you know all of a sudden he had to pay attention to what he was eating. He had to make sure that he was. He, that he looked after his physical fitness rather than relying on his on his on his natural fitness. Uh, so it, it it introduced the level of essential discipline to uh, to, to Wasim that he perhaps benefited from. Uh, I think he um, he also uh, in that period probably benefited from the fact that he was uh, he, he had reached a stage in his career where he was. A recognised great, he he'd achieved that position of of eminence relative to to the rest of his contemporaries that that allowed him a certain freedom, a certain dispensation. Players in Pakistan at the time were very powerful, and the administration was actually quite weak. Uh, the administration was always temporary; it was always being made over. There was a constant churn of administrators there. The players, of course, played through that period. Uh, and they and they had to endear themselves naturally to the next administration, but uh, but the power relations I think were maybe a little bit different to the way they are in Pakistan now, where of course there is no uh, the, the the employment market is a, is a monopsony structure, where the players have very there are very few player agents there is no player trade union. Uh, the players, in some respects, have gone backwards relative to the administration in Pakistan since the, the peak of, uh, of Wasim's career. Yeah, I mean, it's a book about cricket, but it's also a book about fame and that very particular South Asian fame with its peculiar intensity, uh, its uh, its volatility and its um, and its vulnerability. Um, so, you know, Wasim is has ended up being a a good advertisement for fame. I think he enjoys it uh, now. I think he enjoys his continued eminence and, and relevance, but he's had to get there the hard way. Uh, interestingly, he talked about his um, his drug habit very early on uh, in one of our very earliest conversations. He said, I want to make a clean breast of this, but we didn't get around to talking about it until very late in the process, by which time I, I think I had earned his his trust. And he was prepared to be very, very forthcoming about it. It surprised me actually that he was prepared to be that vulnerable. But uh, but I guess that's all. That also comes with the maturity of age. You know, he's a man in his fifties now. He's not a man in his thirties. We're, we're basically the same age. I think he's uh, he's six months younger than uh, than I am. So we're kind of <laughs> confronting middle age uh, at the at the same time with all the kind of the. The doubts and uh, and uh, and perplexities that, uh, that 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 come with that, it possibly that possibly helps. Uh, I think he's actually, um, uh, he's, I mean, he's a very he's a very interesting man uh, as a study of a famous person and a study of uh, a man of his country and also of the world. You probably couldn't get a more cosmopolitan Pakistani than. Uh, than Wasim, you know, he's very well travelled. Uh, he's at home in all cultures. He's he's multilingual. Uh, he's um, you know he's uh, lives comfortably. He lives well. Uh, he he lives at a strata of society that's um, that's kind of uh, a, a little bit out of touch with 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 day to day experiences. But part of him is so Pakistani that uh, that it's almost impossible to imagine him coming from any other country. He's um, he's a wonderfully courteous person. We're seeing that was perhaps one of the big surprises about him. He is very civil. He, he understands the, the 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 social graces. He is uh, 
and when he meets you, he is very, he's quite ceremonial in, in the way in which he, he relates to you. Um, he's very, he's good at small talk. He's, um, he's a nice guy uh, without perhaps losing a sense of his, um, of his amazing accomplishments. You know, he's very comfortable with that, with that fame now. He's proud of, 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 of his cricket and he's proud of being a Pakistani. He would have had all, he's had all sorts of opportunities to, uh, to, to leave the country, to, uh, to set up permanently elsewhere, but you can take the, the Pakistani out of Pakistan, but you, but you can't do the, uh, do, do the opposite. Um, and that's why he spends uh, as much time as he does now in Karachi, while also maintaining this fascinating link with Manchester, where he played for Lancashire for 10 years, and he still spends every English summer, you know, absolutely loves the place, loves the bonds that he formed at Lancashire, is very, very close to the members of that, of that county dressing room at the time, and relishes them, uh, I think, particularly so because they were so different to the bonds that he had in the Pakistan dressing room. It was Lancashire was where he went to recuperate after the the, the traumas and, and tribulations of uh, of playing for Pakistan, and in that sense, probably was very important to prolonging his career for as long as it went. We um, he came to Australia for that period of uh, of the writing of the book. And I know that we um, we had some sessions at his home in Brighton where he spoke for an hour, hour and a half. We got on to two hours and he just said, I can't do any more. I'm completely exhausted. And he went off and he slept for the rest of the day. And it was very, very hard for him to, uh, to, to revisit. And we went back again the, the next day. So he had to do it in, in, in small increments. Uh, and I think part of him still feels really not cut up because, I mean, he's very happy about where he is. He loves his, his current family. He loves his current in-laws. But part of him's never been able to, to get over that loss. Uh, he gets a look in his eye when he talks about Umar, and it's a look that's seasoned with grief and regret and sorrow. Uh, I hope I've done a good job of of, of conveying that because it was – Certainly wasn't a tap. It was it was pretty difficult to uh, to get to, but matched with an equal determination to get there on on Wasim's part. Yeah, I spoke to their next door neighbours in uh, in Altrincham, and they adored adored her. They told me so many great stories uh, about her. You know, she was a really vivid personality in her own right, and a very very accomplished woman who sacrificed an awful lot in order to be Wasim's uh, wife and perhaps didn't get the recompense that, uh, that, that she deserved, certainly not in the form of a, of a, of a long life. But I think um, what's been great about his second marriage to Shanira is that um, he has been able to re-establish his bond with his sons. Uh, you know, Wasim is quite open about the fact that he was a classic Punjabi father who turned up every now and again in his son's childhood and showered them with gifts and then went off to do whatever he did and left all the parenting responsibilities to, to Humar. Uh, Shanira, who's a wonderful woman, I, I can't speak highly enough of her, uh, said, basically made it one of the conditions of their relationship. She said, you've got to, you've got to be a better father. You've got to be a better father to these boys and, and I'm going to help you. Um, you know, discover a common ground with them. Um, she's an absolute force of nature, Shanira. Uh, and I, I should reiterate that if it hadn't been for her, there would be no Sultan. Uh, it was really her uh, her desire to um, have Wasim share his story, share some of the stories that she'd heard straight from him with a wider audience that has given us this book. So my hat's off to her. Perhaps the most challenging chapter in this book for Gideon to tackle would have been the one around match fixing because uh, this involves that period in the late 90s and the turn of the century where there was so much muck being thrown about and so many allegations, especially in Pakistan where almost every cricketer who played through the 90s was either implicated or was accused of uh, 
doing some wrong or having shady dealings. Um, how much of the Kayum report did Wasim uh, have an idea of? Uh, it turns out in the book that he had not actually read the Kayum report until um, he was collaborating with Gideon on this book, which is a shocking uh, revelation in itself. But I also wanted to find out how Gideon, as a journalist, approached this topic. Because when one is doing journalism around match-fixing, one is trying to be as objective as possible to find um, where the truth lies. But in a project such as this, um, Gideon is also trying to bring out Wasim Akram's uh, point of view. And he's also, in a way, serving as an advocate for Basi Makram to put forth his view on the matter. So I wanted to ask Gideon about this delicate balance. The, the main challenge of writing that was that Wasim's own recollections are suppressed. Uh, it was a period of great trauma. And as often happens with trauma, um, it is something that you, know, you, you put to one side. You try to put in a box, which you, which you never access again. I mean, it was a terrible period in his career. It does coincide with the with the advent of his diabetes, which adds an additional complication to it. It it really was a a, a case of um, of uh, yeah, his survival instinct kind of got him through that that period. Uh, of course, I wrote about that period as a as a journalist, um, and uh, I, I thought I knew. Uh, the ins and outs of uh, of the match fixing story pretty well. I'd sort of been around for the first draft of history, if you like. But when it came for me to to look at it, I realised that I actually had a copy of all the affidavits from the Kayum inquiry, which was given to me by Mark War's lawyer in in 1998. Because online sources were not particularly helpful. It was just you know before that period when, when uh, everything got put online. It was just that little bit out of view. Uh, of course, it was difficult for, uh, for, for Wasim to, to revisit because it was so problematic. So I, I began by discussing it with other people who had been in Wasim's orbit, uh, his, his, his friends and his, and his family, uh, to get a sense of what Wasim was like with a kind of the altered state that he seemed to, to, to slip into in that, uh, in that period. So I was able to take others' recollections to him and put those uh, those those propositions. Interestingly, Wasim had never read the Kayum report. Uh, I said, you know, you're really going to have to if we're going to do this properly. So he agreed to do it, and uh, and he he rang me the next day and he said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe what those people said about me. Uh, and that kind of energised him a little bit. He he felt as though he couldn't believe what people had got away with saying about him. So that kind of redoubled his uh, determination to, to uh, tell the story straight. And I think he has actually done a pretty good job of telling the story straight. Uh, and I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't, you know, I, I can say that with, with, with some candour. Um, I think there is an issue where Wasim's concerned about his protectiveness towards his own family. Uh, that's an area which is which has some sensitivities around it. But when it comes to discussing his own teammates and his recollections of the dressing room, he really was a pretty open book. Uh, I didn't get the impression that he was holding anything back. Uh, and when I talked through individual allegations uh, against him, it was surprising how flimsy those allegations looked in hindsight and how... Perhaps poorly, uh, the Kayim report compared to our, our recollection of it. At the time, it seemed terribly authoritative. It seemed terribly suspicious. Uh, it seemed uh, to, to uh, conceal a sort of a vast continent of, uh, of, of malpractice. You ended up walking away from the Kayim report thinking, you know what, a lot of this is just one man's word against another. Uh, unsupported hearsay allegations by people who may or may not have individual ambitions to uh, to, to advance. Uh, 
that the passage of 20 years had actually made a difference to how I saw the, the, the Qayyum inquiry. And when it, when it came for me to talk to Wasim, well, she wasn't that difficult for me to, to believe it. If I, was, if I was capable of abandoning my own preconceptions, uh, I mean, I think um, uh, it, it was not, it certainly wasn't forensic. Uh, it certainly didn't do anything to identify money flowing from from one person to another. And of course, these these allegations are always very difficult to uh, to, to prove and to disprove, uh, for for that matter. Uh, I think that, um, and I also think that a lot of it has to be interpreted in light of the administrative weakness of uh, of, of Pakistan cricket at the time. The fact that it was basically turned over to a quasi-judicial inquiry, but not one that had any standard of proof that could be uh, tested at, uh, at a judicial level. I mean, in the end, Wasim gets fined because uh, there are lots of allegations, not because an allegation was, was proven. He was fined for sort of uh, purposes of deterrence, you know, to... to to, to keep him on the straight and narrow in future, which is a bizarre way for a judge to, to operate. To uh, <laughs> It was kind of sentence first, verdict afterwards, to, uh, to, to borrow from Alice in Wonderland. It is characteristic of, uh, of, of a cricketer who feels exposed by the system, who doesn't feel protected by, by their administrators, to gravitate towards those friends and associates who have been around for longest. Because if I can't trust them, who can I trust? Uh, so in that sense, I think Wasim was probably quite naive. Uh, and, uh, and it's only with the wisdom of the ensuing 20 years that he's come to, to question uh, the, um, uh, the, the context in which um, those events took place. And it's something he says that he tells young Pakistani cricketers now that um, you know that that's not a mistake that you should make because sometimes you evolve but your friends do not uh, so you 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 have to be more judicious in the way in which you uh, you choose your confidence uh, at the time of course the integrity mechanisms around the game were flimsy if not to the point of almost non-existence. So access to players was so easy. Uh, in some senses, it would have been amazing had malpractice not taken place. Maybe that maybe that uh, lurks underneath our assumptions about the extent of match fixing in the 1990s is that we knew how easy it would be for uh, for, for matches to be thrown when when people weren't looking. You know, we were accustomed to the idea that where there were so many games of cricket. And a lot of them had were really pretty pointless. And really the players had to look after their own integrity. No one was doing it for them. So in some senses, maybe cricket was less corrupt than it probably could have been in the, in the 1990s. It's amazing that it wasn't more corrupt. When we assess cricketers from across eras, uh, it's interesting how we look at left-armers, whether it's left-arm fast bowlers or left-arm spinners. Um, Wasim Akram has always been tagged as the greatest left-arm fast bowler of all time. Uh, some people may even call him the greatest left-arm bowler of all time. But uh, it's strange how that qualification always has to come in. And I wanted to ask Gideon why very, very few people actually refer to him as perhaps the greatest bowler of all time because there is a case to be made given his record in tests and one-dayers and his, the length of his career, the manner of his bowling, how he revolutionized uh, reverse swing and so on and so forth. There is a case to be made to see, look at him as the greatest bowler of all time, full stop. So I asked Gideon about the curse of the left armor in this regard. And uh, given how much Gideon had uh, researched uh, Wazim and the fact that he had watched so many YouTube videos of him, I also wanted Gideon to pick out um, a handful of uh, spells uh, from matches that he saw recently and uh, which where he felt that 
true greatness of Wasim Akram? A lot of Wasim on YouTube over the last year or so became a real uh, YouTube fanatic because there's great highlights there and he's just absolutely transfixing. Uh, he was every bit as good as you remembered. Uh, perhaps that's key. You know, I had very vivid recollections of watching him, but I was interested to see how well they stacked up in uh, in hindsight. You could just imagine him now gunning batsmen down. Uh, he, uh, he's still he's still got it, and that's reinforced somewhat by the fact that he's in great physical shape these days. Yeah, he's um, he's a big man. He's a tall man. He's a broad-shouldered man. He's still strong and handsome and virile, and uh, he still looks the part. So. It's not difficult to, uh, to to imagine him going out and and, and still doing the business. Uh, is he a better bowler than Wilfred Rhodes? Is he a better bowler than than, than Bishop Beatty as far as left arm is concerned? There's there's no doubt that there is something uniquely watchable about left arm bowlers that gives them that little uh, that little gilding. Uh, it's like seeing yourself in a mirror. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of it makes it beckons the eye and, and it forces you to, to concentrate. And there was something about uh, the fact that left armers were in relatively short supply in that period that enhanced his uh, his menace. But I think uh, when it comes to assessing him as a bowler, there's just no one being capable of doing it from more angles and with more skills than Wasim, you know, from over and around the wicket. Orthodox swing and, and reverse swing, uh, incredible pace and uh, and 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 sideways movement, uh, coupled with the fact that he was an explosive hitter and a, and a fine leader. I, I think there's a, there's an argument for him to be the best cricketer uh, of, you know, in the, certainly in the best ten cricketers of all time. It was interesting that when Shane Warne came to picking his all time team to play against Australia. He made Wasim captain. Uh, you know, so he respected him as a leader as, as well as a cricketer. And he just said there was absolutely no doubt about that. Uh, of all the cricketers that he played against, Wasim was the one that stood out. And, I, and he revolutionised his skill. I mean, nowadays, yeah, when Mitchell Stark comes around the wicket, we go, oh, well, he bowls around the wicket. But it was so rare, so rare in, uh, in Wasim's time. His ability to from round the wicket to make the ball swing away to left-handers, that's just extraordinary. Uh, and he did it ritually. He did it naturally. And he also, um, you know, cutting his run-up in half, halfway through his career, which, you know, enhanced his longevity and probably magnified his explosive power, was just something that he did overnight. It wasn't as though he had a coach to direct him. Was as though he had um, a huge phalanx of, uh, of support staff to, to fall back on. You know, he met, he he created himself. Uh, I know that Imran was a huge influence on his career, but to a very great degree, Wasim is a self-created cricketer. Now you look at you know, Intikar Balam was allegedly coach of the Pakistan cricket team through the through the late nineteen nineties, but really his role was to you know hit high catches and to and to give out dailies. Uh, that the players coach themselves, and in that sense, Wasim was the best coach of his time because of the results that he was able to squeeze from himself. 1992, that World Cup final is 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 pretty special. Uh, there's long highlights of of that game on the uh, on on YouTube, and of course, I was there that night, uh, sitting in the southern stand, pretty much behind the bowler's arm when Wasim bowled that. Sp- that second spell and uh, and picked up Lamb and uh, and Lewis with with balls going the opposite way. I mean, I I, I love that. I love, I love the fact that I was there to watch it thirty years ago and and thirty years later ended up being able to talk to the cricketer who'd um, who, who'd accomplished it. Um, and I, and on the highlights, it's every bit as exciting as it was at the time, and perhaps even more so because in nineteen ninety two, yeah. Were full of, it was the MCG full of Australians who were, who were um, sort of there somewhat grudgingly uh, having expected their own team to be at the final, which, which cast a somewhat weird atmosphere over the, uh, over the occasion. Um, what else stands out? I think um, uh, some of Wasim um, bowling in Sharjah, because there are quite a few highlights of that to my surprise, 
to my pleasant surprise, uh, I hadn't seen the cricket from from Sharjah, of course, in the 1990s, being in Australia. Uh, there was something very, very exciting about those games because uh, their day games, the crowd's going wild because they're roughly uh, equal Pakistan and and Indian supporters. And Wasim's impact on them is so explosive. Uh, There's a game where he picks up, I think, Ramesh and Dravid with the first two balls or three balls of, of an ODI over there. And they're just fantastic deliveries, uh, balls that just could not have been bowled by anyone else in in, in history. Uh, so you know, I relished seeing that. I relished. I also relished seeing um, the documentary, the 1999 documentary made by the BBC about that uh, that Pakistan tour of of India, and and some and a really nice kind of ground level take on the cricket. It's actually, you know, it's, a lot of the time it's shot from the dressing room or, or shot not from behind the bowler's arm but from in the ground. And you got a real sense of the occasion, the amazing occasion around that series. It made me think that if there was a series of history that I wish I'd been there for, it would probably be that one. Those two test matches uh, in Chennai and, uh, and, and Kolkata uh, just seemed to me to be to be worthy of a book in themselves. Maybe maybe Rahul Bhattacharya could could go back and uh, and do a prequel to uh, to pundits from Pakistan. It was quite funny to talk to Kumble about this. You know, they, they've both got very different recollections of, uh, of of those Test matches, and it was quite funny to uh, you know that the rivalries can be sustained for for long periods. Like I asked, um, I talked to Justin Langer. Um, when I was doing the book. And he was actually really generous, Justin, characteristically generous. He loved playing against Wasim. But he surprisingly, he confided that he actually found it quite difficult to get motivated to play against Wasim because he knew Wasim to be such a good fellow, such a good guy. Uh, you know, he revered him as a cricketer, but it was actually quite difficult to get his competitive juices flowing against a guy who he actually knew to be really pleasant. But then, um, then it came to that famous encounter in the Bull Reef Test match of of, of 1999, and uh, when I told uh, Wasim that uh, that I was talking to JL, he said, "Oh, you know, remind him of that decision that uh, that that was given in his favour that that call behind." You know, he he absolutely smashed the cover off it, and uh, so Justin sends in his contribution, and I say, "Oh, thanks, JL." Um, by the way, um, Wasim's still dirty about that uh, about that court behind. Justin sort of said, "Oh yeah, tell Wasim I fucking smashed it." That was classic, classic Australian response, wasn't it? I couldn't think of a better note to wrap up the podcast. Uh, we did chat a bit more on this and that, but uh, I think uh, what we had had so far sums up pretty much what Gideon had to say about Wasim Akram and it also sums up and tells us what it means to be so close to the greatest of the great and to collaborate on a book with them when they are reminiscing about their careers. So um, yes, pick up the book. It's called Sultan. It has uh, a lot that you can learn from. There is so much to take you back to the 1980s and the 1990s. And uh, maybe it will lead you down a rabbit hole through YouTube to watch as much of Wasim Akram as you can. I'm sure some of our listeners are young and have not seen Wasim Akram's career and him bowling. But uh, take a bit of time and go on a long journey (laughs) through YouTube videos and you will understand how he is so perfectly made for YouTube. Uh, because there are some bowlers, like Richard Hadley or Glenn McGrath, whom you, for whom greatness came because of the process. They were metronomic in their approach to the crease. They were extremely disciplined with their length and with the manner in which they got the batsman out. But with people like Shane Warne, with people like Wasim Akram, uh, there were magic balls every now and then. Sometimes there were three magic balls in an over. Sometimes... You know, you would find a magic ball when you least expected. 
and all that is captured really well on YouTube and you will understand how Wasim was the kind of bowler who could bowl reverse swinging Yorkers from around the wicket from eight paces uh, without absolutely any discomfort or any awkwardness whatsoever. He was so natural that it was as if someone had chosen him and built him to walk on the cricket field and do something special each time. Uh, so that brings us to the end of the podcast. Um, uh, really, really big thanks to Gideon Hay, who was kind enough to come and talk about this. Uh, usual reminder, War Minus the Shooting and Cricket Beyond the Bazaar, two classic works of cricket lit- literature, have been recently republished by 81 All Out Publishing, our venture into the book publishing space, where we are trying to revive old cricket classics. So pick those two up. I'll put the link down and you can pick them up on uh, wherever you choose, online, or if you're uh, in India, you can pick them up in some bookstores too. Big, big happy new year to our listeners who have been so supportive of us um, through our journey in this podcasting space. And uh, we wish you a terrific new year and we hope to bring you more special podcasts in 2023 and uh, rate, review, spread the word and um, have a great year. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild.